Well, good evening. It is good to be with you, and it's good for us to be together. Appreciate you being here, setting this time aside to study God's Word, to edify one another, and to to praise our Creator. In our world, items break. In our world, things deteriorate and wear out. Living things get hurt. They become weak and sick, and eventually, all living things die. And in spite of all the knowledge and all the skills man has learned, has gained, and achieved to improve the quality of our lives, and even to the point to extend an individual's life through various medical treatments, Death cannot be stopped. And so we grieve. And we groan. We groan with the whole creation as described in Romans 8, which has been subjected to futility and corruption from the very first sin mankind committed against our Creator. So where is God Where is God when you think about the subject of suffering and death? Well, worldly critics like to amplify the fact that there is evil in the world and there is suffering in the world. It exists all around us, implying that God must not exist. And that you cannot find God. Because surely if there was a God, there'd be no evil, there'd be no suffering. And how conveniently they ignore the fact that many, if not most, of the painful consequences in life are often the result of man's choices and man's actions. So it's not God's fault, is it? But generally speaking, unbelievers want to dismiss the reality of their sin. Why? Well, because if you can dismiss the reality of your sin, you know, at least in your mind, you can convince yourself that, well, then it frees you from any sense of accountability to anyone or to anything in this world or elsewhere. But the remedy of man and the remedy of man's apparent inevitable end is Jesus Christ. He's the remedy. The very one that is ascribed to us in the Holy Scriptures is the one who conquered death and now holds the keys of Hades and death in his hands. If Christ was not raised... If our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, was not raised from the dead on that third day as we believe him to have achieved, well, then everything is a lie. Everything is a lie if Christ has not been raised. And even the Holy Spirit, through Paul, uses that kind of reasoning And accepts the fact, if he hasn't been raised, then there are some things about Christianity that is all a lie. It's all useless. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, just selecting a few of the verses here in the 15th chapter, where it says, for example, in verse 14, 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is vain. If Christ is not raised, then why are we here tonight? That's the point. You know, why are there evangelists of the gospel of Jesus if Christ is not raised? That's a reasonable question. A question that it comes from the Holy Spirit and Christ and our Father. In verse 15, he goes on to say, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, in fact, if the dead are not raised. And so Paul, he says, you know, we, the apostles, or the witnesses of Christ, if Christ has not been raised, then you know, our witnessing is all a lie. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. If Christ is not raised... Verse 18, then says, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if true, if Christ has been raised, as the scriptures say, then everything that God has revealed, everything that God has said in the scriptures is true. If Christ has been raised. So that is our focus tonight. To talk about the evidence of the, uh, of the subject of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That we need to fortify our faith with these reminders. And equip ourselves to have an answer. To give a defense to those who ask us of the hope that is within us. That is built on the foundation of the fact that our Lord and Savior lives. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is central. It is foundational to the one faith which saves. And there's a number of passages I'm going to throw up here that illustrate that the fundamental nature of the resurrection to the gospel and to faith and to our salvation. As you already read in Psalm 16 verse 10, the resurrection is the evidence that God's prophetic revelation is always true. Through David, the prophet and king of God, we were told that God would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. And he didn't, because he's raised up the anointed Christ. To ever live at the right hand of his throne in heaven. It is also the declaration that Jesus is truly God's Son. Romans 1 begins that great dissertation of how we are saved through Christ with the very fact, fundamental foundation that He is declared to be the Son of God by the power of the resurrection. Jesus foretold this. Even in His lifetime, Jesus Himself said, this is going to happen. I am going to die, but I'm not going to just die any old way. I'm going to be killed. But he says, but I'm going to raise up on the third day. For example, in Mark chapter 8, 31, very quickly, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. He says, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be killed. And he says, who's going to kill me? These are the people who are going to kill me. But after three days, Jesus said, the Son of Man will rise again. 
Chapter 9, verse 31 as well. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. They will kill Jesus. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So not only is the resurrection the evidence of the truthfulness of Scripture, the, the accuracy of Scripture, but also it is the declaration that he is who he claimed to be when he says, I am the Son of God. It is also a testimony to the fact that Christ is master over death. Christ was raised from the dead to die nevermore, and death has is no longer a master over him. And the flip side of that is Jesus is the master of death. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. He is the master over death. And for that reason, there is life that exists after death. In the Gospel of John, chapter 11, on the occasion of raising Lazarus, even with that miracle, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, but he is not master over death, though. Lazarus died again. He had to go through death again. But listen to what Jesus says to Martha about who he is. There in chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection I am the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Jesus, the master over death. There is life after death. There's also the idea of the spiritual transformation that is attainable because of the resurrection of Christ. If we have been buried with him in the likeness of his death, we shall be in the likeness of united in the likeness of his resurrection. And Romans 6 is all about this transformation of dying to sin and becoming a new man in Christ. That's possible not just because of his death, but that's possible because of his resurrection as well. Forgiveness is real because of the resurrection. If Christ has not, has not been raised, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you are still in your sins, implying you have not been forgiven and there is no forgiveness. But the Holy Spirit through Paul says there is. Why? Because Christ has been raised. And last, to illustrate just the fundamental nature of this theme and this thread of truth, and that is, it is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ that there is the hope of eternal life. That is assured to you and me. Because Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, just like David prophesied according to God's word, just as the Son of God prophesied according to his own word, we now have the hope of everlasting life. There in First Peter, uh, excuse me, uh, yeah, First Peter chapter. Now that should be. I'm in Second Peter. That's why it's looking wrong. In First Peter chapter one verse three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again. We are born again in Christ. We are born again through Christ. To what? To a living hope. Why? Why is our hope alive? 
Why, why does it live forevermore? Because through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from that, that's why you have a living hope. And so the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central. It is foundational to your faith in God and in Christ and in salvation. And if Christ has not been raised, all of that is a lie and in vain. So we need to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but we need to understand the fortification of that faith and why it is not built upon some gullible idea that some man just thought up and he's trying to deceive us in some way. We need to understand the foundation of the resurrection to our faith and that your faith is solid and it is firm and is able to withstand whatever storm that comes your way in this life. Now, it's interesting to think about the fact that obviously on the subject of the resurrection in the academia world, in the academic world, that there are all kinds of various arguments against it. And people have various, you know, various degree, you know, degrees or levels of faith about it. But it's interesting to think about the idea that among scholars, scholars who have very different beliefs, there is a general acceptance among many, if not most, not all, but there is a general acceptance among many, if not most, scholars to recognize that you, know, you can rely on the historicity of the New Testament. You know, as a document, an ancient document, that what is recorded there is reliable history. Now, although skeptics may agree on some level with that, you know, skeptics generally will then say they don't believe in the resurrection, though. They won't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but these critical scholars will agree on some of the points, which I find very interesting, because it's all in the same documents. You know, the same men are telling the same story, but the skeptic will not accept the resurrection while they'll agree on a number of facts about Jesus Christ. And to illustrate that, there is a scholar by the name of Gary Habermas who's written a book uh, titled The Risen Jesus and Future Hope. And in the book, he has a list of various facts that these scholars agree on. And I just want to share this very quickly with you. These are points that even people who don't believe in Jesus on the aspect of the historicity of the documents will accept, okay, I can accept that point to be true. And so, for example, thinking about the death of Jesus, they agree that, okay, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. They, they can all accept that point. And they'll agree he was buried and most likely, likely in a private tomb. Soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged. They were bereaved and they were despondent, having lost hope because their Savior was killed by Jewish enemies. But then the tomb of Jesus was found empty very soon after his internment. But then the disciples had experiences... And basically, they agree on this point. The disciples had experienced that, that they believed. Now, notice that. <laughs> you know, they'll agree that they believed what they saw. But they do agree that these disciples had some kind of experience that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. And due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly changed. They were transformed because of what they saw. 
and now what they believed. And so to the point that they were willing even to die for their belief. The proclamation of the resurrection took place. Yeah, yeah. Go back here. here yeah, yeah. Uh, skipped it. Uh, okay, I'm losing my track here. Yeah, yeah. The proclamation of the uh, of the gospel took place very early in the beginning of history. It, the testimony there was in Jerusalem. You think about it, is it began in the very city he was crucified, where he died and was raised. That's where they began preaching. And proclaiming the death and burial of Jesus Christ and him to be the son of God. That message is the center of the gospel. You know, that's very you know, clear. And also they, they, they agree that Sunday was a primary day for the gathering uh, and worshiping of those disciples. And then two more points to his, this list by this Mr. Abermas. And that is James, you know, the brother of Jesus, and a skeptic. Before this time, you remember the family of, uh, of Jesus didn't necessarily accept him right away. And so James, who, believed, who was the brother of Jesus and a skeptic, was converted. They agree on the fact that he was converted when he believed. He also saw the risen Jesus. And then some years later, Saul of Tarsus became a Christian, became a believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. So basically, all these different points, you know, you know that he has compiled, and and among you know a number of ac- uh, scholars in the in, in academia realm, they can agree on the fact, even though they not may not believe in the resurrection, they'll accept. Okay, they believed he was raised, and so what it does, it just emphasizes the fact that this critical agreement. Now, they don't agree on about Jesus, maybe, but this critical agreement on these major points among these various scholars, basically what it does, it indicates and points to the fact that the New Testament is not a legend. It is not an embellishment, and nor is it a lie. The fact that they can agree on these points amplifies the fact, okay, these are historical documents that you can trust. The history that they tell. I find that very interesting in that, from that standpoint. And so, you, you know, like I say, as we talked before, the reliability of, of the New Testament, you know, you know, don't be ashamed to take your stand there. You know, there's no shame to hold fast to what the word has revealed to us. It is truth. I want to share an interesting, you know, interesting thing you know, about uh, a former aide to President Nixon. I'm not much of a hi- historian. You know, there are some of our Canadians that are have history in ma- majors in history. But I found this very interesting. Uh, Charles or Chuck Colson, who, you know, like I say, was a former aide to you know, President Nixon and went to prison over the Watergate scandal. Uh, you know, I'm going to share a quote, some quote, uh, a bit of a quotation from uh, some writing of his. That actually, was an online commentary uh, that where the you know, it's titled you know, "An Unholy Hoax" is the question. And he, uh, there's a couple of things he says I find very interesting, and and I think you know reasonable in the sense of challenging people's you know. Uh, Doubting of the scriptures. 
And what he writes is this. Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up. Perpetuated by the closest aides to the President of the United States. John Dean testified against Nixon, and as he put it, to save his own skin, and did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Now, the fact is that all those around the president were facing embarrassment, maybe prison. Now, this Mr. Colson. You know, served you know, time in prison. But he goes on into, in this uh, commentary, he goes on to then, you know, kind of build his line of argument and thought. And he says, and he has a question. He says, but what about the disciples? What about the disciples of Christ? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment, or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. And then he asks, don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? And he says, none did. It's a thought to ponder. When you think about the boldness and the confession of faith of the eyewitnesses of the bodily resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Consider Peter. What did Peter do before Jesus died? Peter denied Jesus three times. Why? In the words of someone else. To save his skin. To save his skin. He was scared to death. Because of what he was seeing. He denied his Lord. And left weeping. Would he not have denied Christ's resurrection. If he knew it did not happen. If he's a man that could have denied Jesus before his death, a man who confessed adamantly and boldly, you are the Christ, you are the Son of God, you have the words of eternal life. Don't you think after he was gone that he would be tempted to die him again if he had not been raised? Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia has been quoted to say, no sane person will die for what they know is a lie. You know, men may die for a lie, but they don't know it. 
They might not know it's a lie and they die for that cause. But no sane person is going to die for what they know is a lie. And we have in the New Testament, we have New Testament eyewitnesses and New Testament martyrs. All because they saw their Lord and Savior Jesus alive. After being dead. After being dead. And dying on a cross. That's why Peter in Acts chapter 2 verse 32. As he, as he is proclaiming Christ. He's pro- proclaiming him as the son of God. As the Lord in Christ. That needs to be you know, obeyed and followed. You know, he says this Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. Of which we are witnesses. There in Jerusalem. The very place where the enemies of Christ cried out, crucify, crucify him. The very enemies of Christ, you know, carried him off to Pilate and, and put political pressure to make sure he was crucified among thieves. In that same city, that same city, approximately 50 days after the death of Jesus. They're standing boldly, unashamedly, confessing their faith that Jesus is the Son of God. And declaring that he was raised. We saw him. And there are those 12 men in in the midst of that mass of, of, of a Jewish gathering testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The empty tomb of the man Jesus. The empty tomb of the man Jesus demands a reasonable explanation. Now, there are people, critics and skeptics, who offer various you know, alternative theories. But those theories really you know, do not provide for us really any trustworthy evidence. It's just not reliable. For example, you may have heard of the so-called apparent death theory, you know, that he really didn't die. Well, that's really not reasonable, is it? Even historians recognize that. That's just not a reasonable suggestion to suggest Jesus really didn't die. Another one is the hallucination theory. That, you know, you know, Jesus just hallucinated or people were just hallucinating, you know. Well, 500 people do not hallucinate at the same time. And generally speaking, no single one person has the same hallucination. So that's not reasonable. And even the theory that the, the body was, was stolen, which even the New Testament says that, that that wasn't an, an attempted effort to you know, kind of turn, turn the tide here. All of those are feeble attempts to justify the basic fact that they reject the miracle of the resurrection. They don't want to believe in a miracle. Divine power intervening in nature in overcoming nature's laws. The tomb of Jesus, no matter what their theories are, the tomb of Jesus remained empty. And recorded eyewitness testified that that tomb was empty. You think about it, 
the lifeless body of Jesus never disproved that Jesus wasn't raised. The lifeless body of Jesus never disproved that Jesus was not raised. You think about all the people who were at the, at alive and whatever their age span was, that time frame, you know, that people who were there in the midst of all of that and what they could have done to try to prove, you know, that Jesus was not raised by simply showing here's his body for all to see. But instead what we have, we have testimony that people said that the tomb is empty. The Gospels give us this historical account that, first of all, there were some women who testified, you know, you know that the to- tomb was empty. So let's, let's just go ahead and turn over to Luke chapter 24. I want to read some of the, these texts. We're not going to read all of the scriptures that you're going to see on the, the PowerPoint. But in Luke chapter 24... You know, verses 1 through 9, you have the women coming, you know, you know, the day after the Sabbath, on the first day of the week. They, they have come to the tomb, you know, to you know, continue to, you know, put more spices on the prepared body of Jesus Christ. And so it says, on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spice which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. There is actually a theory that says they, they went to the wrong tomb. And interestingly, Luke says, back in chapter 23, verse 55, he says, the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb. And how his body was laid. They made sure which tomb it was. So, it, 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 once again, it, it is unreasonable to suggest in this historical document to say, well, no, they just didn't remember where, you know, where they laid him. Well, no, they followed and they saw where they put the body of Jesus. And so the next day they come, the stones rolled away, and when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. He's gone. It's empty. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. And returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. The first ones to testify of the empty tomb were women. That itself empowers the authenticity of this historical document. The reason why is because at that time, a testimony of a woman was not very valid, is it? Jewish culture was, was such that they generally did not accept the testimony of women in a court proceeding. And yet God chooses to reveal the empty tomb first to women. If you're going to try to pull the wool over somebody and just deceive them, you don't begin by saying, okay, the women are the ones who first saw the empty tomb. 
It brings greater authenticity to the reliability of these historical documents. This is accurate history of what really, truly happened. And then we, we turn over to John 20 and recognize it is then after that report that then Peter and John run to the tomb and they verify. And so it's verified by two of the apostles. But then thirdly, you even got the guards going back to the enemies of Christ. And sure enough, they're, they're paid off to basically lie about you know, what, what has happened. To basically say the body was stolen. But the point is, the tomb's empty. (laughs) Their lie, and you think, their lie confirms the fact the tomb is empty. And y'all are really pulling at straws here to try to convince what really happened. The truth is, as stated here in Luke 24, verse 6, that is, he's not here. He's not here. Why? Why is he not here? He's risen. That's why. He told you. It's happened just like he told you. In the New Testament documents, in the gospel accounts, you have 12 appearances of the raised and living Jesus documented in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. You think about that. 12, you have 12 different eyewitness moments. Not 12 different people. 12 different occasions of eyewitness moments. The law of Moses established that how, how could you confirm an event? We confirmed it by two or three witnesses. What's recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures is 12 documented eyewitness records. And think about our own court system. You know, are the testimonies of multiple eyewitnesses weighed in our judicial system? Yes, of course they are. And that testimony is going to weigh and looked at from various angles. They're going to consider the integrity of the character of the, of the witness, of the eyewitness. And they're going to, okay, well, is, is their testimony, is there a sense of intelligent communication? Are they able to communicate in a way that we can understand what has occurred? Is it an intelligent communication? Thirdly, another thing that they consider, is there agreement and is there harmony among the different testimonies? Even if there's variation, does it mean that there is disagreement? There can be variation and still have agreement in the sense of eyewitness testimony, telling it from their viewpoint. And fourthly, they consider the sufficient, is there a sufficient number of eyewitness testimonies to support the claim? And you think about those four categories and weighing eyewitness testimony. And you think about the New Testament testimony. Each one's checked off. The men are of integrity. Yeah, they are intelligent. Yeah, there's agreement. There's harmony. And there is sufficient number to support the claim. And so therefore, what is written in the New Testament is revealed to produce faith. It is revealed to produce faith in us. It is revealed to fortify the faith that we already have in us. But also it's revealed to produce faith in others as well. Mary Magdalene was the first eyewitness of the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it is the, it is the Apostle John that records this particular account. 
And so in John chapter 20, there in verse 10, the women have, have come, they've left the tomb. They know it's empty. And so they're running back to report. And, and you have the account here in the 20th you know, chapter, beginning in, in verse uh, 10 and 11. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. She saw two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And Jesus said to them, because they've taken away my Lord. And I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing and did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. Of all people. Of all people. The first one that Jesus chose to reveal himself to was Mary Magdalene. What a story of faith. A character of change. He's not here. Why? Because he's risen. And Mary testified to that fact. As you go down the list, there's another other accounts that are recorded in the various gospels. We've got him appearing to a group of women in Matthew 28. You know, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to Peter by himself on one occasion. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus there in Luke 24. And then later on, ten, the ten apostles, which is also recorded not only in Luke, but also in John 20 as well. When you see in verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, Think about this. He was raised on the first day of the week. You know, here in, in John 20, and it's a week later before he appears to the apostles as a group. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, and the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy spirit. If you give the sins of any of their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And as you know, the story continued to unfold. Thomas was not in that number on that particular occasion. And so in verse 24, it continues to tell us the story where Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other apostles came, were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. They didn't believe Mary. <laughs> they didn't believe. Now Thomas doesn't believe his fellow apostles. He says, but he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors having been shut stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here, reach here with your finger 
and see my hands and reach here your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who do not see and yet believed. Twelve different accounts recorded in reliable historical documents revealing to us the fact he was seen. Jesus was truly raised from the dead on the third day, just as God foretold through his prophet David, just as God foretold through his son, Jesus Christ. He was raised with, with power on that third day, declared to be the son of God. It happened just as God said it would happen. You think about it. You know, Jesus claimed to be equal with God, the father, even when he was still on earth. He made that claim. For example, in John chapter 8, verse 58, when Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. And that Jewish audience understood exactly what he meant by that. And it angered them. It infuriated them that he would make such a claim. Jesus claimed to be God even while he was on earth. Why is that? Because Jesus was greater than Abraham. And Jesus is greater than Abraham. And his resurrection is proof of that fact. It is the final earthly proof that Jesus is who he is. It is for that reason, because of the proof of the resurrection, that we have the proof that one day all men will be judged. The resurrection is also a proof of the fact there is accountability to God. As Paul preaches here in Athens, when he says, He has fixed a day, God the Father has fixed a day, in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof, proof to all men, by raising him from the dead. How do I know I'm going to be judged one day by God? I know that because God raised up his son from the dead. He's the proof that he's going to judge my life. I'm accountable for the deeds that I do in the body, whether good or bad. The, the living one, the living one who holds the keys of Hades and death in his hand, that's the very one that every soul throughout time will stand before and give an account for their life. We are without excuse. Not only that there is a God, but we are without excuse concerning Jesus Christ, because it's, the proof is there. Christ was raised on the third day, declared to be the Son of God, appointed by God to be the judge of mankind. If you're here tonight, you're not one of his. You're not one of Jesus' disciples. You have not called upon his name in obedience to the gospel by confessing your faith, 
that he is the son of God with your mouth before others, repenting of your sins and being buried with him in baptism to wash away those sins as Jesus has instructed and commanded. If you've not done that, we want to encourage you to do that, even tonight. Not because we said so, but because of who Jesus is. Give your life to him. Surrender your all to him. Because one day he will judge you and only he can save you. Whatever your spiritual need may be, please come now. Make your wishes known when we stand and sing the song that's been selected.